This is the Dividend Health Checkup. Hi, I'm DJI Guy, and this is the Dividend Health Checkup. Along with Dr. Dividend, we are bringing you a weekly show that is dedicated to learning as much as we possibly can from investors who are primarily focused in the dividend investing space. Moving on quickly, this week's article of the week comes to us from Simply Safe Dividends, who we had on the show way back in episodes 11 and 13. And that's kind of confusing, right? Why not two episodes in a row? It's irrelevant. Back to the article. So he wrote an article that is called Cummins High Dividend Yield Still Safe? A thorough review. I'm guessing that anyone who's listened to the show for a while knows why I selected this article. For starters and for disclosure purposes, I am a Cummins shareholder. With that out of the way, the second part of his title is why I flagged this article for the podcast. A thorough review. I'm always on the lookout for great example of folks who are reviewing the appropriate details to answer the question at hand. So the goal of his article is narrowly focused on the subject of the dividend. It goes into a little bit of the background of the company and why this question even exists, but it's primarily focused on the safety of the dividend. And so when you think of that as just one component of what makes up a stock and what makes that stock worth owning, the details that he goes into in this article are relevant for all of you folks who are looking to do your own analysis and looking for kind of a template for what you should look at relative to the basics of dividend safety. So take a look if you have a minute. It's a pretty quick read. But for now, let's move on to Dr. Dividend. Welcome to today's show of the Dividend Health Checkup Podcast, and I am pleased to have our guest who has never written an article on Seeking Alpha, but he has written getting close to 4,000 comments on Seeking Alpha, and uh, we welcome to, the, welcome to the show Steve Rasher. Steve is a retired airline executive, and he was with United Airlines in everyone's favorite position of being an attorney for them. So I don't know how many jokes we're going to get in there, Steve, about that, but we'll certainly try to get a couple in. How are you today? I'm very well. And how are you? (laughs) I'm doing fine. And thanks for having me, by the way. Oh, absolutely. And uh, part part of the reason why we started, Chris and I started this show was you know, there are a lot of great uh, writers on Seeking Alpha, but some of the comments that people make are just as valuable, sometimes more valuable than the articles. And, you know, and you were just one of those people I wanted to reach out to just because, you know, some of the comments you make are fantastic. And so here's just a different venue to try and get your voice out on what you've learned, um, the mistakes that you've made and being, you know, an attorney in a large industry now retired, granted, but still keeping on track with, you know, these various mergers and acquisitions and lawsuits that occur that become big news. We wanted to get your take on things. So I really, I appreciate you coming on to the show. Well, and I appreciate you giving me the opportunity, um, a little essay uh, advertisement here. You know, I, I think uh, Seeking Alpha is a terrific forum uh, for people to uh, 
to learn a lot and I've always learned a lot. And uh, one of the reasons I do comment is, yes, I enjoy it and I enjoy writing, but I also enjoy sharing and giving back uh, to, to the community uh, because I get so much out of it. So uh, this is just another opportunity and I greatly appreciate it. Well, thank you. Now, Steve, uh, at least on your bio, it mentions that you were in private practice uh, for 10 years as a trial and appellate work attorney before moving over to United Airlines. Why the switch? A couple reasons. Uh, I I grew up in a business environment, so I always had a a business background. My dad had his own business, and I worked there uh, to put myself through high school and college. Uh, or college and, and law school, uh, and uh, and that's why I decided to actually get a. In those days, it was unusual for somebody to get a business degree as pre-law because I always intended to go into law school, uh, and uh, so I had a background in economics and finance. And as I got more and more into the practice, I found out that I uh, I, I had more uh, affinity for what my clients were doing because I was dealing with a lot of in-house lawyers. And uh, so that that attracted me, and I, I missed being uh, in the business aspect, and, and uh, uh, wanted to kind of mix the business and the law. I mean, I I really I still love the law, but I also enjoyed the business. And so when uh, I concluded that it wasn't going to really work for me on uh, in private practice, I started looking uh, to uh, for an in-house position. And interestingly, United did not have a trial lawyer position, but uh, they called me back uh, and said we got a transactional position, and I had never really done transactional work. But I said, "Hey, it's the law. I'll give it a try." So that's it. so that, that that's that's the why I made the switch. It was really combining all of my interests. Fantastic. And so, you know, now delving onto the investment side of things, at what point did you become a self-directed investor? I th- I've always been a self-directed investor. Uh, I never really used an advisor. I would say back in the 90s when we were we got the house paid off and, and a few other things and started accumulating some excess funds, if you will, uh, I started investing in the market uh, in a small way at that time because I was still working full time. And that was very difficult. And our 401ks and, and all that uh, uh, stuff – I just kept in, in basically the S&P 500 or a growth fund. But that's when I kind of started when we had the opportunity. But I've always been, in that sense, a self-directed investor because when I was in college, I was lucky enough as a senior to take all of the uh, courses in securities and securities analysis through the master's level. So I've always had that affinity. Got it. And so what factors made you transition from being a self-directed investor to leaning more towards a dividend investing style? Well, uh, when I was working, I was more focused on being a, a growth style investor. And But when we retired, you know, I, I have a, a modicum of a pension uh, after the bankruptcy. And knowing the Social Security would be coming up in a few years, I recognized that I was going to have to supplement uh, those quasi-fixed income sources, if you will, uh, with other sources of income in order to try to uh, have the kind of lifestyle we wanted to, which dictated then keeping creating a cash flow, if you will, uh, and that necessitated looking at uh, 
uh, dividend uh, stocks, but also stocks that would have some growth and in terms of principal as well as the dividend. And so that was sort of a natural uh, evolution or metamorphosis for me. And if you don't mind me asking, when did you retire? I uh, I left uh, United uh, June 1 of 2011. It was uh, about six months after the merger. So the, okay. And the, that merger was with whom? That was between United and Continental Airlines. Okay. And uh, basically what it was is mostly the Continental management taking over. Okay. Because there's been so many it seems like so many mergers in the airline space that <laughs> I, you know, I can't keep track. It's certainly not an industry I follow just because, uh, if I'm not mistaken, uh, in terms of innovation and technology, that has been the, the greatest financial loss out of all industries. If I, if I remember that statistic correctly, when you look at from a historical perspective. Yeah, it's, um, it was a fascinating industry to work work for, and it's a fan, fascinating business. But the transformation uh, from a regulated industry uh, in the you know in the nineteen uh, we became un- deregulated in eighty two eighty three. But that transformation was a very painful process. You know, over thirty five years now, and that's a whole story in and of itself. Uh, that that could take two hours, but yeah, and, and I think it's only in recent times where they become real businesses, and, and that they're starting to make some money. <laughs> yeah. well, I I think most of it has to be with uh, hedging of oil, especially with prices so low compared to recent history. That's the only way that they're gonna make money. But that's that's a whole side topic. Right. Well, the airlines right now are not are actually uh, terminating most of their hedges. Which is an interesting thing because because the, the hedges they had they've actually lost a lot of money. That is interesting, which means they're going to just get crushed the other way now. <laughs> well, they may likely. they may they may slowly put them on uh, when oil starts to rise, but in the current environment, you know, it, it doesn't make sense. Fair enough. So, before I get into the you know the usual questions in terms of what people invest in things like that, you know, with your experience in. Uh, in the law space and with all the recent news of um, mergers and acquisitions with uh, companies between like Walgreens and Rite Aid and um, that recent news between Merck and Gilead with Gilead uh, losing their settlement, I thought maybe we could delve a little bit into, into the legal side of what these issues are pertaining to and really how does that affect us as investors so i'll let you take the floor and just start with an example and i'll and i'll chime in with some more questions that come up well sure um let's just take uh, walgreens and rite aid to begin with um you know rite aid has been sort of the weak sister for quite some time and um I, uh, and Walgreens wanted to get further exposure in some of the geographic areas. The problem is that in other geographic areas, uh, there's quite a bit of overlap in the stores. And when you couple that with the knee-jerk reaction of thinking, well, there's only really one other big competitor out there, which is uh, CVS, you'd say, well, gee whiz, you know, you're going from three to two. And the regulators, uh, as, a, as a general proposition, they'll tolerate three competitors, but they, sh- they sure don't like going down to two with an oligopoly. 
because uh, then they figure there's a, the competition is going to be diminished and the consumer is going to be um, uh, harmed with higher prices. And, and that's sort of a traditional perspective, regardless of which industry you go to. But I think there's and sort of the initial reaction to that transaction was, what is it going to really fly? Will, you know, will the government let it go? And, you know, my, my assessment is I think that it will. What they're going to have to do is to sell off some of the stores in the overlapping areas, uh, probably to CVS. And then uh, and so at least you have two. Uh, as far as the concern about there only being two competitors, the marketplace for pharmaceutical, you know, pharmacies has changed uh, significantly. I think over the last t- ten or twelve years, I mean, you had a, a lot of uh, what we call mom and pop stores, and then the Walgreens and the CVSs and the Rite Aids of the world uh, kind of started taking over. But so have the WalMarts and the Targets. Although Target is uh, CVS is going to be taking over Target's stores, but but you have the WalMarts, you even got Costco's, you've got a lot of the grocery stores that have pharmacies, and so you can't really look at the market as only being what we would perceive to be the traditional drugstore, because all of these other outlets are very strong competitors and have other things things that they sell that actually bring the customer in too. And so I think once you understand that the market is actually bigger than what you think, while uh, uh, Walgreens and Rite Aid are going to have to sell some stores to uh, appease the regulators, I I think once they do that, uh, the deal is going to go through. So, uh, And I think that will make Walgreens actually a stronger competitor with CVS because one of the hidden gems that they're getting from RAD is uh, Walgreens is picking up a, a uh, pharmacy benefits management company, which can interva- interface then with uh, companies like United, for example, and manage that. And that's I think that would give them an advantage. So that's kind of my take on, on that one, because uh, a lot of people were gnashing their teeth as to whether the transaction would go or not. Yeah, I want to stop you a second, because it, to me it's interesting that you're saying from the regulation side that they're worried about an oligopoly. And I'm thinking of, as you were talking, I'm thinking like, well, there's Costco and Sam's and, you know, and it seems to work out just fine. In fact, Costco just seems to eat their lunch every day of the week. But um, yeah, and I know that there's been other attempts in terms of a BJ's warehouse. I don't know if anyone's even heard of that. It, it seemed to be a small Northeastern thing. Mm -hmm. Um, but I, I was, as you were talking, I'm like, yeah, there's pharmacies in the supermarket. There's pharmacies in Walmart. I didn't know that CVS was going to take over the Target ones. Right. Uh, you know, it, but, and I know CVS seems to have, has an alliance with Express Scripts in terms of the, in terms well, of no, that. No, Express Scripts is actually the, one, the largest independent uh, pharmacy benefit manager. Okay. Uh, Express Expressifs actually uh, bought Caremark, which was a Chicago company a few a few years ago, and so that's their PBO. Okay. Yeah. So um, and actually, when you, um, Express Scripts and Walgreens had a big uh, <laughs> big fight about two or three years ago, where Walgreens didn't like the pricing that uh, that Express Scripts was demanding, but they finally got that settled. 
that's one of the reasons Walgreens stock took such a dip about a year or so before they did the boots transaction. Right, right. And so, you know, you said Rite Aid has one of these PBMs. Which one which one are they associated with? It's sort of an in-house brand one and it, I can't remember the name of it, but I mean, I and it really hasn't gotten a lot of play, but I think that that could be a real hidden gem for Walgreens besides the stores. Okay. Okay. That's a, you know, that's an example of the merger and acquisition. Now let's talk in terms of you know, your neck of the woods and uh, trials and patents and all of that fun stuff with uh, Merck and Gilead. And what's your take on that? So let me just uh, sort of a disclaimer to begin with. I'm not a patent lawyer. And uh, there are some folks who have written some good comments on some of the articles that have been written. Uh, and so I've learned a little bit more. But just to give a little background, um, Gilead has a couple of drugs that they that they acquired when they bought Pharmacet, and they are for hepatitis C. And these drugs, when they're ingested, the body converts them, as I understand it, to a compound that then fights the disease. And um, apparently, Merck has a patent not on the drug itself that is ingested, but on the compound that the body converts the drug to to then fight the disease. And that's what this patent dispute was about. Now, Gilead claimed that there was some prior, what they call prior art, that uh, Pharmacet had developed before uh, Gilead filed for the patent, and that therefore it, uh, it shouldn't be held liable for infringement because the patents are invalid. So the first issue that the jury had to, uh, and they went, to, they went to a jury trial. It wasn't, it wasn't what we call a, a trial just before the judge or a bench trial. It was a trial before the jury. And so there were a couple issues. One, Gilead and Merck agreed that if the patent was valid, then there would be an infringement. So the question that the jury first had to decide is, was the patent valid or not? And then the second question is, if it is valid, what are the damages because Gilead has been selling the drug? And so all this has just popped over the last uh, few days. So what the jury first decided was that the patents were uh, valid. And I got there's a little footnote to that in a minute that we'll get to. And so they found that that because they were valid and because of the stipulation that therefore there was an infringement. What they came out with uh, last night, however, is that um, Merck was demanding basically 10% of the sales that had occurred uh, up to date, which would have that 10% would have amounted to about three billion dollars. Well, what the jury came back with is they basically said, no, we're only going to award $200 million because Gilead has spent $15 billion on developing this thing and, and marketing it and all that. And that only leaves $5 billion, and we think the, they should only get 4%. Okay. And from, what I, and from what I read, at least in some of the comments, that Merck found this compound 15 years ago or so, and that if it was that important, they would have developed it. Well, that's part of it, and we'll, we'll get to that in a minute, because 
one of the things that I learned, not being a patent lawyer, is that in, in Nor- and so one of the claims that Gilead has is that Merck kind of sat on their rights, that they actually knew, because Pharmacet had some other patents on some of this prior art, and what Merck is going to raise in the next phase of the proceeding is that Gil- Gil- or, um, uh, Merck did not bring to the attention of the patent office this other prior art when they did their patent and you're you're supposed to do that and that therefore um even though well, let me back up normal normal law in a in a in a legal situation when you got a breach of contract or normal situation is that when you're seeking damages if somebody has what we call unclean hands cuz they sat on their rights or they didn't do something right you can raise that you can't raise that with damages, but if you seek an injunction, which is equitable relief, then you can break that because there's an old saying, you can't seek equity if if you're not equitable yourself. But with patent law, even though this is for damages, uh, you have there is an element of equity in terms of seeking damages because if you acted in bad faith in seeking the patent in the first place, that could uh, limit your ability to seek uh, damages. And so what the patent people are now telling me is that uh, this next phase of the trial, if you will, is for the judge to then set what is the appropriate royalty for the future sales. And this is where Gilead is going to bring up the fact that, uh, in their view, Merck knew, knew about or should have known about this prior art. And they didn't bring it to the attention of the patent office, and therefore they've got unclean hands, and therefore they shouldn't get anything going forward. And that will also probably be uh, an argument of theirs when they appeal it. So there's a lot more to go yet. But the bottom line is, in terms of the damages, even if it doesn't get overturned, it's it, the damages were nowhere as significant as everybody was concerned about 36 hours ago. And the only people that went in it are lawyers, right? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> lawyers, you know, lawyers always win with the, the legal fees. I mean, you know, uh, there's a lot of a lot of times there's uh, on the boards talk about, uh, you know, uh, securities claims for fraud and this and that. And uh, there's always some nasty comments. Well, the only ones that, that win in in uh, securities class action uh, uh, suits are the lawyers. And I would ag- agree that 95 percent of the time. Uh, those class action lawsuits for SEC grounds are probably frivolous, and the lawyers are the only ones that, that win. But occasionally, there's 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 a meritorious one. <laughs> so the <laughs> the final one that uh, you mentioned prior to us recording was uh, in the MLP space in uh, Sabine Oil and Gas. You want to kind of touch on that one and what you've been seeing there? Yes. Yeah, so. Uh, uh, Sabine uh, is a company that uh, is in bank in, in Chapter 11 bankruptcy. Chapter 11 is not a a liquidation proceeding. Uh, Chapter 11 is one uh, where you are reorganizing your debt and your business, and so it, the bankruptcy gives you an opportunity to do that without your creditors uh, taking all the assets and, and hounding you. But one of the things that happens in a Chapter 11 proceeding is that the debtor, or debtor in possession as we call call them, 
has an opportunity to review all their contracts that they have that are contracts that are still being performed. If it's an old contract and it's no longer performed, that's a, that's a different issue. But as long as there's performance by both parties, it's what we call an executory contract. And the debtor gets to review all those contracts, and they can, in the, in the course of the proceeding, either decide that they want to continue with that contract, in which case they would assume it, is what we call it, or they can decide, you know, that's not a good contract uh, for the business, and we don't want it anymore, and therefore we're going to reject it. Now, um, pipeline service contracts, and I've said this a number of times uh, in my comments to uh, a couple of Brad Thomas's articles. Uh, in my view, normally a pipeline service contract is like any other executory contract, and it can be uh, uh, rejected. The fact that uh, the Sabine bankruptcy court judge said that the pipeline contract can be rejected in and of itself wasn't all that remarkable. But what the pipeline companies were trying to argue there is there were some covenants that ran with the land, the land grant. And But when you take a look at the contracts, it's obvious that the pipeline contract wasn't part of a land grant. And therefore, when the judge said it didn't run with the land, and therefore it can be rejected, was again not that remarkable. Now let me back up. If a contract, a service contract, is part of a land grant, then it can't be separated from that land grant. And therefore you can't just try to reject the one part without rejecting the land grant as well. Uh, and that was the argument of the pipeline companies but they didn't have the factual basis to support it. And what it, just so I understand, what do you mean by land grant? So let's here let me let me put it in simple terms. Let's say that I own a house and I own the lot next to it. Okay? okay. And that as it turns out the driveway to get to not only my house but to the lot next to it is uh on my land. And so when I sell you the lot, I'm going to also grant you a contractual right to access your land via my driveway. And so that's, that's a covenant or, or an agreement, if you will, running with the land. So, uh, and, and let's say that you were buying the land over time from me, and I go into bankruptcy and I try to reject the 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 easement that I gave you, the right to use the, the the driveway, I wouldn't be able to do that. Tried to reject the contract as well. So how does this work? Back understanding that and that analogy, how is that consistent with this idea with Sabine Oil and Gas? Well, so if the pipeline companies and the gathering companies, if what they were uh, if they had been given a grant of land or they had given Sabina grant of land and that let's let's say that they had they had the land and they said to Sabine uh we're going to grant you the right the lease and the drilling rights on this land and so we're going to convey that to you now which is an interest in real estate on the condition that you use us as the gathering and the pipeline company, then 
the pipeline service contract would have been intimately in uh, an intimate part and parts and parcel of the land grant to Sabine, and therefore that agreement would have run with the land, much like the driveway runs with the sale of the land. But that's not what they had here. It was simply a service contractor. There wasn't really anything connected to real estate. So, you know, as I was looking through uh, some of the comments before you started talking about this, one person wrote by the judge's thing, that's stupid. Why even sign a contract then? Because it's from what you're making it sound like is that all of these contracts that are written just mean nothing that you know, one person can just walk away and it's like, no, you got to redo the contract or you're not going to get paid at all. Well, no, first of all, that only happens if you're in bankruptcy, but just because the debtor rejects the contract doesn't mean they get off scot-free because the rejection and bankruptcy is the equivalent of a breach of the contract. And so there are, what will happen is upon the rejection, the uh, the other part of the contract will then have a claim for the amount of their damages from the breach, if we will. And that claim then is a claim in the bankruptcy. So those all those claims in bankruptcy, you know, they don't just get forgiven a hundred percent. Okay. They're they have to be satisfied in some fashion. I mean, even in, in the United bankruptcy what happened is we had, you know, billions of dollars in claims. Now, what we did is we kind of had a what we'll call a new United that came out of bankruptcy. And that you new United then issued new stock. And we used the stock of the new company, if you will, as the currency to pay the creditors. And how much they got depend whether they were secured creditors or unsecured. Uh, and so they may have still only gotten, let's say, 40 or 50 cents on the dollar, but it was in the stock. And now you can see what has happened to the, the, the stock since then. Now, in that situation, that happens with a public company, not a, not a private company. The pre-bankruptcy stockholders, their stock is worthless. And that's why whenever I see a public company go into Chapter 11 and people are still trading that stock, uh, <laughs> I, I wonder what they what they think they're trading unless – it's it's more like an option. Okay, um, I I understand it more now. Okay, cool. I want to thank Steve for being part of the show this week, and of course we'll have him back next week for part two. I'm going to go ahead and keep my comments to myself for now and have those for you next week. If you have a moment, join the conversation by finding our show notes published by Doctor Dividend on SeekingAlpha.com. That's Doctor spelled out. If you would like to get a hold of us, please feel free to email us at dividendhealthcheckup at gmail.com. That's all for this week. Happy investing. The conversations on this podcast are intended as entertainment and not intended to represent individual investment advice. The majority of contributors on this podcast are not licensed financial advisors, so please do your own research and do not buy or sell stocks based primarily on what you've heard today.